Our scripture reading is from Daniel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman and I will undoubtedly be the low point of the service this morning. Um, Usually it's not that hard to follow announcements, um, but today even that is a little bit of a challenge. I'm grateful that all of you are here this morning and uh, as John mentioned, as he mentioned, we're continuing a series in Daniel and love these Sundays where we're able to celebrate the goodness of God's uh, creativity um, and the gifts that he's given us as a people to worship him and to express his glory. And so um, thanks to John and uh, the band for doing that with us this morning. Before we begin looking at the passage that Mickey read for us and unpacking a bit of that story, I want to begin and ask that God would help us to understand and um, savor his word this morning. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hungry for this word, that it may nourish us today and in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. What would it take to humble the most arrogant, powerful person in the world? Uh, What would it take to bring that person to his knees? What would it take to produce real, lasting change in that person's life? And what would it take to humble any one of us? What would it take to humble you? And think about it. What could compel Nebuchadnezzar to write a letter like this to his empire? Because you heard that right. Our story this morning, at least some of it, is written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself, written in this letter to his kingdom. The the, the wicked tyrant who conquered and enslaved God's people, the, the villain in our story so far, writes part of our Bible that we hold in our hands this morning. A letter to his people. It says to all the peoples and nations and languages of the known world, describing what God has done for him. So clearly something has happened. Something dramatic has happened, but what? What would it take to humble a person of Nebuchadnezzar's power, position, pride, arrogance? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning together. And and as we go through, we're going to discover along the way that whether or not you consider yourself a Christian, whether you consider yourself powerful or powerless, that all of us experience the allure of power and pride that is, is far greater than we typically understand. And that the roots of pride snake deeper into our hearts than we usually suspect. 
So again, if, if you haven't already opened a Bible or pulled it up on your phone, turn to page 740 in the Pew Bible and follow along as we look at the story for us in Daniel chapter 4. And the chapter opens with the words that Mickey read for us just a moment ago, that Nebuchadnezzar, he's writing a letter to all the peoples of the earth declaring the greatness of the God of Israel, a Babylonian king declaring the greatness of the God of Israel, the Lord Yahweh. Now, this isn't the first time that something sort of like this has happened in the story, in the book of Daniel so far. There are at least two other moments in the story where Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan Babylonian king who carted off God's people to Babylon, has seemed to humble himself before the one true God. One time is in Daniel chapter 2, after Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream about this giant statue that's crushed by a rock. Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of that episode, truly, Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. But before long... Nebuchadnezzar is throwing Daniel's friends into an enormous smelting furnace for their exclusive worship of that same God who he praised in chapter 2. And yet at the end of that story, when God miraculously rescues Daniel's friends from the furnace, that's what we saw last week, Nebuchadnezzar says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are Daniel's friends, who sent his angel and delivered his servants. And Nebuchadnezzar even declares at the end of chapter 3 that no one is to speak anything against this God that Daniel and his friends worship. But despite these brushes with God's power and presence, Nebuchadnezzar hasn't actually been changed by them. He's been afraid, he's been impressed, he's been interested, amazed, but not changed And don't miss that. This isn't the main point of the text this morning, but don't miss the fact that it is possible to be close to God's power, to be amazed by his work and not actually know or trust him. Don't mistake being impressed with God for knowing him. Don't confuse talking about what God is doing or what God has done for actually obeying him or doing what he says. Well, decades have passed since those two incidents, and this is near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel's not done yet. He's going to continue on into the reign of another king, but Nebuchadnezzar is already done. This is our last story with him in the book. He's reigned for 43 years in Babylon, and Daniel was in his teens when he was deported from his home in Israel, and now he's in his 50s. And this story, again, seems to be somewhere toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and Nebuchadnezzar continues in his letter. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Life couldn't have been better. My kingdom is secure. There was no one left to conquer. Time to sit back and soak it all in. And not only has Nebuchadnezzar literally conquered all of the known world at that point, he renovated at least a dozen temples, completed a great wall around his capital, built a new palace connected with his famous hanging gardens, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Here's an interpretation of the gardens by the 16th century Dutch artist Martin Hemschrik. 
And historians will tell you that there are only a few people in the history of the world who knew the kind of power and security and prosperity that Nebuchadnezzar did. Because if you think about it, if Nebuchadnezzar knew that something existed, he had conquered it, he ruled over it, he imagined it was his and it was. But even someone of that kind of power, perhaps the power that only six or seven people in all the history of the world have known, can still be shaken. Look at verse 5. Nebuchadnezzar continues, I saw a dream that made me afraid. This guy struggles with dreams. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And so once again, kind of like he does back in chapter 2, he calls in his advisors and once more they can't figure out what the dream means or, or, or maybe they don't want to tell him what it means. Whatever the case is, that Daniel, one of his advisors, finally arrives and once again Daniel is able to tell him the meaning. Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream and Daniel is able to figure it out. Nebuchadnezzar says, I, I saw a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was really tall, and it just kept growing taller and stronger until it reached the heavens, and everyone everywhere could see it. It was beautiful and bountiful, and there was food and shade for every person and every beast of the earth. But then, Daniel, someone from heaven came down and gave this command. Look at verse 14. He proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grasses of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets, it, sets over the lowliest of men. And again, I'm not sure if the advisors just didn't want to tell what the king what was going to happen, because it seems pretty obvious reading this, obvious that things aren't going to go well for King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and even Daniel is shaken up, so much so that Nebuchadnezzar actually tries to comfort him. He says, it can't be that bad, Daniel, can it? Come on, don't, don't, don't be too worried. And you might think that Daniel would be happy to deliver this kind of news about the demise of an evil dictator who had taken him from his homeland and held him captive for 40 plus years. But he isn't. He's afraid. But not for his own safety, I don't think. Because he's shown us back in chapter 2 that with the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that he's willing to deliver bad news at the risk of his life. No, I think he's afraid for a different reason. He's concerned because he cares about Nebuchadnezzar as a person. You see, Daniel, at God's command, sought the welfare of Babylon and this king for nearly five decades now. And Daniel, it seems, genuinely loves and cares for even Nebuchadnezzar. 
God loves even those most evil of political leaders. And Daniel, loyal and loving, even to his wicked king, declares, O king, why can't this dream be about your enemies? But it's not. You are the tree, and sooner or later, God is going to cut down the tree, and you are going to lose your mind and become like an animal. You'll lose everything until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Until you know who is really the boss. But King Daniel says, repent, break off your sins before you are broken off, practice righteousness, show mercy to the oppressed, and perhaps the divine lumberjack will give you just a little more time. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. He ignores Daniel's warning. He ignores the concern and care in his voice. He doesn't change. Maybe he tried for a little bit, but old habits die hard, and Nebuchadnezzar had gotten really used to, over 40 plus years, being the person of absolute power. Or or maybe he just forgot. Maybe he just didn't care that much anymore. And if it's easy enough for us to forget about God and not care that much about him, I'm sure it wouldn't have been all that hard for Nebuchadnezzar either. And the thing is, he's fine. For a full year, things could not have been better for Nebuchadnezzar after this dream. And so one afternoon, he's walking on the roof of his palace, surveying his cities, his gardens, his power, his wealth, his comfort. Never before has anyone been so successful. And you can just imagine this rooftop. The the camera zooms out, and you can hear the music squalling in the background. Archaeologists have actually recently uncovered a recording of the music that was playing in this moment, and it sounds like this. This is the song that was playing. And you can see it, right? You can hear it. Nebuchadnezzar saying, "If if I were you, I'd want to be me too. And he says the exact kinds of things that I think most of us feel when we review our accomplishments, right? But we would never say aloud. And and you can picture him, arms stretched out, sort of bourbon in one hand, a cigar in the other. Verse 30 saying, is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for my glory and majesty? And almost immediately, verse 31 says, as the words are still in his mouth, a new song begins to play. So he declares how awesome he is. And then you can almost hear God laugh. Can't you at least hum along with Johnny Cash? God had warned him, given him every chance. He had given him every moment to repent. But this is how you you know it's bad because God cuts in and just sort of says, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, let me stop you right there. The kingdom has departed from you. And all those terrible things you dreamed were going to happen. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to be like a wild animal. Fierce hair, long talons, grazing like an ox. You're going to live in the wild like the beast you have become until you know, verse 32, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And let's just pause here for a moment to make our first observation from this account. And that is that pride, it deceives, dehumanizes, it destroys. And and this literally happens to Nebuchadnezzar. In trying to take the place of God, he ends up like a beast. 
And this is how the, the great English romantic painter and author William Blake captured Nebuchadnezzar's descent. See, this is what pride does to us internally, if not externally. Like Dorian Gray, we may not look beastly on the outside, but the portrait of our souls and our addicts look a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar than any of us would want to admit. Because while none of us have the power or position that Nebuchadnezzar had, every one of us is marred by pride. And here's the hard thing about pride. You see, pride, it's a lot like bad breath. You have a keen sense of it for, for everyone else, but you can rarely smell your own. And because of this, the dangers of pride and the lure of power often slip past our defenses. Because I think most of us, especially if you grew up in church and have, you've been warned about the dangers of sexual sin, right? We're, we're on the lookout for, for fatal attraction. But are we as vigilant about fatal conceit? The allure of power, influence, authority. Because all of us have power. And in God's design, that's a good thing. We were made in the image of God who is all-powerful to exercise power for the good of others and the glory of God. But most of us aren't aware of the power we have or how we might be misusing it. Most of us aren't aware of the power we have or how we might be misusing it. Author Andy Crouch writes in his book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. He says, all of us, have enough power to do great damage to others and ourselves. Unmapped and unknown, power's grip is hard to shake. Your words, how and where you spend your money, your position as a parent, a boss, a teacher, a popular kid at school, all of those are places of power. That's not a bad thing. But do you recognize them for what they are? I have power as a pastor. It's not a bad thing, but, but I'm aware, am I aware of the places that I have power? Have I owned the places that I have power? Taken stock of what misuse could, would do to me and those around me? Have you mapped the power that you have? Understood how it could be misused or left unused for good? Because you see, it's not just the misuse of power, but also power left unused. And I suspect that in the end, as our lives are evaluated, that when it comes to the category of power, most of us will not be so much condemned for our misuse of power, but for not exercising the power that we had in places for good. You see, when Daniel called Nebuchadnezzar to repent before all this came on him, he said, break off your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. This is verse 27. He doesn't say, Nebuchadnezzar, stop exercising power, quit being king. He says, no, rather use the power that you have in ways that you aren't now. Use it to show mercy to the oppressed. Use your power for good. But you see, in our pride, our power becomes about our own self-advancement. And it becomes an idol that begins to be the thing that gives us meaning and significance. And Tim Keller points out that when, 
power becomes sort of the guiding idol of your heart. That your worst nightmare is humiliation. For you to look bad in front of other people, to be humiliated is your absolute worst nightmare. That the people around you will always end up feeling used and manipulated, having their arm twisted. And you'll also always have sort of a low-grade anger because you'll always feel that you deserve better than this. You'll, you'll never be thankful, right? Because when anything good happens in your life, if you have an idol of power, you think, well, finally, it's about time. I deserve this. It's what pride does. But again, what's so bad about pride? I love, again, the language that Keller uses. He says, pride is cosmic plagiarism. Pride is cosmic plagiarism. It's taking credit for God's work. How would you feel if someone took credit for the paper you work or the sales results that you earned or the fact um, that your children turned out as well as they did? Or if someone else took credit for those things in your life, you'd hate it. But that's exactly what we do to God. Pride looks around and says, look at, look at my house that I've worked so hard for. Look at, look at my job. I got it because I got into a good school and worked hard. And maybe that's true. Maybe you have worked hard, and that's a good thing. But here's the thing. What if you had been, what if I had been born in a different century? I'd been 400 years ago born. Or a different country. Or what if I hadn't been born to those parents or given those opportunities? What if my skin was a different color or I spoke a different language or I grew up worshiping a different God? All of those things I had zero control over in my life the family I was born into, the color of my skin, the century I was born, none of those things I had any control over. And yet pride looks at all of that and says, I did that. I earned that. Pride is dehumanizing. We try to make ourselves more, but, but we actually become less. It turns us into beasts. To be human is to be created, dependent, subject to one's creator, and pride rejects that, rejecting the foundation of our humanity. I think that's why it's so appalling when we see it. We know that we were never meant to live like this. Again, we may not have the platform that Nebuchadnezzar had, but all of us have power that when blended with God-defying pride creates a cocktail that is poisoning us and those around us. So what are those places, those unmapped places of power that blended with pride, are destroying you slowly from the inside out. Don't wait for what happens next. Humble yourself now. Because God will humble. It happens just as God said it would for Nebuchadnezzar for seven periods of time, and we don't know what those periods of time were, whether they were weeks or months or years, but whatever this time was, it was long enough. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. He humiliates them. Everything gone, even his dignity. The divine lumberjack takes out his axe and he starts chopping. Now I guess that most of us with Nebuchadnezzar feel okay since he was an evil tyrant dictator. We kind of feel like, well, he had it coming. But if God can do that with Nebuchadnezzar's pride, what will he do to mine? Johnny Cash's words have been ringing in my ears all weekend long, even as I think over my own life. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. 
And he will do it not because he's petty, but because he's merciful. God will cut us down because he is merciful. Yes, it is a severe mercy. And yes, it hurts, but it is mercy. It is mercy that lets us live, that saves us from ourselves. Mercy from being absolutely forever bent in on ourselves. Severe, yes. Painful, yes. Merciful, absolutely. Have you ever considered hardship in your life not either to be just bad luck or somehow God's punishment, but perhaps could it be that when hardship comes into your life, it's actually an expression of God's severe mercy? Now, not every bad thing that happens to you is God's discipline. Please know that. But it's always worth asking the question in the midst of difficult circumstances, how might God be using this to humble me to make me more dependent on him, to show me <clears throat> places where I've, in my pride, just depended on myself and acted as though I didn't need him. See, we don't have to wait till God cuts us down to size and forces us to see that we've been taking credit for his work. We can humble ourselves right now. Uh, but of course, that's a lot easier said than done, right? God tells us three times what he's looking for. He says, until you know, Nebuchadnezzar, that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Until you know who is creature and who is creator. And it's hard to learn, yet Nebuchadnezzar does learn it. He learns it. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Isn't it fascinating that the acknowledgement of God is the return of reason? True reason starts from a position of humble faith. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can say to his hand or say to him, what have you done? He learned it, but if only Nebuchadnezzar had started there, for in these words we find the great antidote to pride, and that is to delight in something bigger than yourself. A God who rules the universe, who is good to his people. You see, there's no pride, there's no room for pride with a God like that. So thank him. Every good you have is because of him. And sure, we are responsible to work hard, to respond, to make good decisions. But even those abilities to work hard, to have faculties to make good decisions, are ultimately a gift from him. So thank him for them. Thank him. Also trust him. Take your rightful place as a dependent creature. You are not the creator and at its core, pride refuses to be a creature. That's one definition, one way you could talk about pride, a refusal to be a creature. I think Frank Underwood describes this so well in House of Cards. Frank is the epitome of the idol of power, and he says, I've always loathed for the necessity of sleep. Like death, it puts even the most powerful men on their backs. To sleep is to be a creature. Instead of seizing power all the time, embrace rest. 
daily remind yourself that he is in control, not you. That he keeps you safe, not you. That he determines what is good, not you. Even in the hard things, God is still sovereign. He's still gracious. Will you trust him? So thank him, trust him, and learn from him. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus describes his yoke himself as gentle and humble in heart. Humble. Where do we find true humility? How do we learn true humility? We find this humility in the yoke of Jesus. It's in the yoke of Jesus that we learn to and are empowered to do what Daniel called Nebuchadnezzar to do verse, in verse 27 of this chapter. This is how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 27 of chapter 4. So king, take my advice. Make a clean break with your sins and start living for others. Quit your wicked life and look after the needs of the down and out. Then you will continue to have a good life. Only in the yoke of Jesus can we do those things. The antidote to pride isn't trying super hard to be humble. The antidote to pride is doing what God says, trusting him, and learning from Jesus in the yoke. And it actually does work out for Nebuchadnezzar. His reason returns. His kingdom is given back to him. And more importantly, in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And don't miss this. Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, and, and you can be sure he was humiliated, can't you? Because what ruler sends this kind of letter to his people? Right? God's severe mercy leads him to repentance, conversion. This, this letter that we have... These are Nebuchadnezzar's words telling all of what happened to him about him becoming a beast. He sends the story out to his entire kingdom. You don't do that unless you've been deeply, deeply humbled. Otherwise, you keep the fact that you were like an ox eating grass kind of to yourself. But he sends a letter to everyone in his nation telling them the story. This letter is this testimony to the world. And it sure seems like Nebuchadnezzar enters the people of God. Our family. He and Daniel become brothers in God's family. We, we might just get to see him one day in the new heavens and new earth. And if that's true, do you think maybe he'd say the humiliation was worth it? Reminds me of one of my favorite stories in the Narnia series. The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis. And Aslan, the great lion, is the Christ figure, a picture of Jesus in the story. And in the climactic moment of the book, Aslan the lion and Huynh, who happens to be a horse, meet for the first time. It would be terrifying to be a horse meeting a lion, wouldn't it? Not unlike Nebuchadnezzar meeting his God. But I love what happens in this scene because when she's shaking all over, gives this strange little neigh, and she trots across the field to the lion. Please, she said, you are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. You see, this is the message of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Sure, we see how disastrous pride is, how severe God's mercy can be, and the importance of delighting in the true king. But at the end of the day, if you only take one thing from the message, it's this. I hope it's this, that it's better to be humbled by God than exalted by anyone else. Better to be humbled by God than to be exalted by anyone else. Better to be devoured by him than fed by anyone else. So let him humble you. Because for he was humbled for our sake. The one who was truly exalted, who built all of creation, not just Babylon, by his mighty power, for his unending glory, of his true majesty, he humbled himself. The same God who confronts Nebuchadnezzar is crucified He comes and becomes a man. He enters our brokenness. He's crucified, cut down on a tree for our sake so that in due time he may lift us up. Because of Jesus, because of this king, I'd rather be humbled by him than exalted by anyone else. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you... Give us the courage and the eyesight to be able to see and confront the places of our pride and misuse of our power. Would you work within us a Christ-like humility that lets us experience the joy of self-forgetfulness? Would you do this even now as we come to the Lord's table to celebrate the good news of forgiveness of our sins? In Jesus' name, amen.